The Good Problem, formerly known as Do Gooder, is a podcast series unpacking the sticky art of doing good. You'll hear me, Lee Matthews, getting curious about the ethics of doing good, the dangers of doing good, and how to do better at doing good. I've been working in the doing good sector for the last 15 years. In that time, I've set up an NGO in Cambodia, won a whole bunch of awards, burnt out, had two children, learned a lot of lessons, set up a consulting company, co-founded the Rethink Orphanages Network, traveled the world, written a book, and spoken to audiences globally. You can find me at www.leematthews.com. Globally recognized as a pioneer in responsible travel, Jeff Manchester is the co-founder of Intrepid Group, the world's largest provider of adventure travel experiences, and a director of the company's not-for-profit, the Intrepid Foundation. Jeff and his best mate, Daryl Wade, founded Intrepid Travel in 1989 with a vision of creating small group adventures that traveled the local way, benefiting both travelers and the places that they visit. More than a quarter of a century later, Intrepid Travel has grown to become Intrepid Group, a portfolio of four specialist tour operators and 23 destination management companies taking over 250,000 travellers to more than 120 countries on all seven continents and employing more than 1,800 staff in 29 offices around the world. Welcome to the Do Got A Podcast, Jeff. Oh, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. So we'll jump right into it. First of all, what does the idea of doing good mean to you personally? I think for me personally... It's recognising that we come from a nation that's benefited in a lot of ways to give us just an amazing lifestyle and standard of living. And we need to recognise that other people haven't had that. And you should all be doing things that can benefit people who don't have such good circumstances as us. And also doing things to benefit the environment as well, because um, obviously that's that's a huge issue at, at the moment in the whole world. And so um, it's about doing good for the environment as well as people. So you feel it's a responsibility given the, the country that we're born into, we have a responsibility to give back as such? Uh, most definitely, because Australia is effectively the richest country in the world. It may not be at the moment because our um, currency has devalued a little bit but effectively we are and so you know yeah we do have a responsibility to help other people and recognizing that we become uh, wealthy partially on the back of people from other countries but also our standard of living isn't necessarily going to improve by just becoming wealthier and wealthier our standard of living in a lot of ways will improve if people in other countries become wealthier because it creates less threats to us and improves our way of life. Absolutely. So I want to head way back in time to before you and Daryl co-founded Intrepid. I've read that you guys bought an old council tip truck from Melbourne, shipped it to London, and then drove it across Africa for six months. And from what I understand, this was where the idea for Intrepid was born. Can you tell us what it was about that trip that motivated you to want to start a travel company and do things differently? 
Yeah, so that trip wasn't seriously Daryl and my trip. It was a group of people and it was actually like a cooperative. So we had 14 people who got together, put wow. some money in, bought the truck, fixed it up, sent it to London, and then we drove it through Africa for six months. And it was during that trip that we started talking about the concept of Intrepid and probably it wasn't so much the trip itself as, as our backpacking experience before that yeah. is what stimulated, but stimulated the discussion. But having the time on that trip to talk through what we thought we might want to do was really valuable. So I was one of the drivers of the trucks because I had a truck driver's license. Amazing. <laughs> and Daryl would sit with me just occasionally in, in the cab while, while we were driving and everyone else was in the back. And we would talk about the concept of travelling in a small group, experiencing a country like backpackers do rather than as tourists isolated in a resort or in a big international hotel. And we'd talk about the concept of travelling by public transport creating interactive experiences with local people, all sorts of things like that. And what we were actually doing was creating the unique selling points of Intrepid. Not that that phrase existed at the time, to our knowledge, but, but that's what we were doing. And it meant that when we finished that trip and decided we would start a company, we had a really good understanding of what it was we were wanting to do, which I think put us in good standing, having good direction and not getting diverted to doing other things and, and having agreement between us, understanding between us that that's what we wanted to do. And has Intrepid always tried to be a socially responsible company from the start or is that something that came a bit later? I know that was very much from the start and it was partly operational along the lines of using infrastructure that's already in the country, not needing us as imported to carry us around as, as tourists that we were using infrastructure in the country, you know, not needing international investment for big hotels, being able to stay in small locally owned hotels as much as possible. So there's that sustainability side of it. But then there's also the philanthropy part of it of giving something back. And so our understanding was that if we're hopefully going to make a living out of taking people to developing countries, then we should be giving back to those countries. And soon after we started, we identified a few organisations on the ground that needed some assistance. And we, we started um, assisting a few of these organisations before the company was profitable. And in fact, before Daryl and I were getting paid a salary. So, so that really did start right from the very beginning and became more formalised once we were making a profit and had a bit more money to spend. And then even later, when we created the foundation to enable our travellers to contribute to that. And why do you think it's important that Intrepid is a socially responsible company? And these days, what does that mean in practice? Uh, look, it's important for us as owners of the company, just that's what we do, that the um, business we have acts as sustainably as possible. It's also important for our people, both for attracting really great staff, but also for retaining them and keeping their interest uh, and engagement with the company. But it also results in improving our performance because our customers are uh, attracted to a, a company that is sustainable and acts in a sustainable way. So it's really beneficial to us in the longer term. And I think the way the market is moving now that sustainability is becoming more and more important to customers and other businesses in the industry are seeing that and are changing the way they do business. And I guess in wider industries, companies are realising that 
and changing the way they do business. Absolutely. And I think from my work in the travel sector and working on advocacy around volunteerism, I think Intrepid is seen as a leader amongst peers in this approach to responsible business. And, And I'm interested to know, have you seen more of a demand for sustainable and socially responsible products over the past few years or is it has it been kind of steadily building yeah it'd be hard to say that that it's accelerated change i think it's been fairly steady over time yeah perhaps more now with you know climate change becoming more of an issue people are thinking about specifically for travel thinking about how much traveling they're doing what sort of travel they're doing But we're in a fortunate position in a way that the market's moving towards what we want to do. And so I guess when we first started 30 years ago, we were way up there radical in what we wanted to do. Whereas now the market's moved towards our style of travel and there's a lot more people looking for something to do in their travel. And that's coming about because more people have travelled and more people have travelled more frequently. And the more frequently people travel, the more they begin to ask themselves, well, perhaps there's something outside that resort that I should go and explore in this country and they start researching offerings that are in in the market. Yeah, absolutely. And from there, I'd love your take on volunteerism. There's been a lot of criticism of this model of travel and giving back and mixing the two. What are your thoughts on it? We dabbled in volunteerism um, for a small while, not doing it ourselves, actually selling another company that did volunteerism. And we came to understand that it's done in a really poor way in a lot of instances. And there are instances of good volunteerism, but there's too many instances of the beneficiaries creating an artificial demand for the volunteerism. And in there I'm talking about particularly about something like orphanage tourism, which is a particularly poor uh, version of volunteerism where where the orphanage owners would be bringing in as many people as possible because they get as much money from each person coming and there's not necessarily anything for those volunteers to do within the orphanage and lots of other reasons for orphanage tourism to be poor but then there's other sorts of volunteerism that can be quite positive and that's things like um, doing research about animals or the environment and that sort of thing and so no it's not as though volunteerism should be totally condemned it just needs to be done in a way that has positive outcome for everyone Another form of volunteerism that's particularly good is is going and doing basic work, like building things in a community, because that's probably taking work away from local people who could be doing those sorts of things. And consumers tend to love this idea of helping doing something that they're not actually skilled at, which is taking work from other people. And it'd be much better for them just to give their money to that community so that they can buy things and build, build things themselves. Absolutely. And that brings in this concept of uh, self-determination and and self-empowerment for those communities. And and generally we find that they know what they need best. And when we have groups coming in, building things for them, it really undermines that concept of of self-determination and I think creates that reliance on tourists to provide when they're not necessarily qualified to, nor is it something that those communities wanted in the first place. And it doesn't just relate to uh, volunteerism. I mean, you're right in that people need to have a say in what benefit they receive. But it's also in the wider tourism industry that people in communities need to have a say about 
what sort of tourism they want. You know, and there's too many instances of things like resorts being built in communities without the community having a say over whether they want that or not. And ultimately, without the community necessarily getting a benefit of having that resort or any, any sort of activity uh, based within that community. So tourism really needs to start with local communities and then being able to say, yeah, we'd have, love to have a big resort or we'd rather have something small scale or we'd rather have people just coming here for the day and not staying in, within this community or, or whatever it is. Tourism has an impact no matter what. Even our tourism has an impact and some of it's negative and some of it's positive and the community needs to understand that and be the ones who judge you know, how much negative that they're, they're willing to endure Absolutely. And I think there's a tendency to focus on the, the positive outcomes of bringing tourism to a, a new area. So the, the economic outcomes through employment and, and, you know, skill building and things like that. But there's very little discussion with communities themselves about what the risks are to that community and to their local culture and practices and influences of outsiders uh, are really not discussed, I think. Have you got any examples or any kind of other ideas of when you've seen good intentions go wrong in the tourism sector? Not specific examples, but there's obviously broad examples of destinations that over time it's been done really badly. And, you know, it's places like Pattaya in Thailand and, and obviously Kuta Beach in Bali, places like that. And Phuket might be like that, I'm not sure now, but where... It's not necessarily that one specific thing was done badly, but there's just been too much tourism, uh, which has created a really negative impact on that destination. And can you tell us about how you've done it well? I'd love to hear about that. There's two I'll, I'll tell you about. And one we, which is relatively amateurish that we did about 25 years ago was in Borneo, in Sabah. We've been taking people there for quite a long time, taking lots of people climbing Mount Kinabalu, and we got to know a lot of the porters and guides uh, who took us up Mount Kinabalu and they wanted us to come and stay in their village. And so we talked with their village for about 12 months about what it is we'd want to do in their village, what things they'd like to get from us coming to their village. And after 12 months, we'd agreed and we put it in our brochure and started selling it. And then we sat down and said, well, how much are we going to pay you to, to come and stay in your village? And they said, well, nothing. You're our guests. You're coming to stay as our guests, <laughs> which is wonderful, but not really um, a practical thing when there might be groups coming every week or every two weeks, something like that. And so what we did, we arranged for them to open a bank account in Kodakina Blue, and we would put money in there each time a group visited so they could then, as a community, use that money for some benefit to the community. And, and that worked really well for a long, long time. Excellent. The other more recent one is one we did in Myanmar about three years ago. And it's with four villages in a community, you know, not necessarily that far from, you know, from the general tourist route, like only a couple of hours. And one of the problems with developing tourism in any sort of small community or Indigenous community is often they will get some money to build something and they'll create something and just expect the tourists will come. And the tourists don't come because... The distribution of the product is the, the most important facet of, of our business. And so what we did, we worked with this community and with a not-for-profit called Action A. And our part was to say to the community, if we're going to bring people into your community, this is what you need to provide for us to keep them interested. Yeah. And they understood that. And then Action A 
help that community to build a little guest house where we could stay and train them to provide the services that we would want. And that's been hugely successful and our passengers love it. The community has got this regular income coming in. Me and my politicians have found out about, we've had 60 politicians visit or something like that. And when politicians visit in that sort of country, they always give the community money for further development. It's also used for the local guiding course. They take their students up there to see see how it's done. And so that's a really good example of community-based tourism. And it's been really successful and we're now starting to expand that and we're developing like 10 other of these projects around the world. And once they're done, we'll start rolling them out in a much bigger way. And it's great because the community wants it. They're doing things that are important to them that they can show to our customer. The customers love it. And for us, it's a unique experience that no one else can offer. And, uh, And so that makes it hugely valuable for us. It sounds like a really kind of interesting and innovative way of collaborating with the not-for-profit sector as well to build capacity rather than just bringing in tourists. And so, Yes, it's building capacity and they're doing things that we aren't able to, to do because we're a travel company, we're not a development agency and, you know, we can go in there and try and teach them and tell them what they need but, but we don't really have that skill so it's much better for a development organisation to to help the local people with that aspect of it. You raise a really good point there. I think in particularly in the volunteerism sector, I think there's a real tension between being a tourism company that facilitates right. travellers to come into these communities that are often vulnerable, yet having an impact on development issues without the development knowledge or technical yes. experience. And it's this grey area that we see that has kind of arisen through the phenomenon of volunteerism becoming very popular, that there's a lot of kind of money and resources going into communities, but not much connection to development priorities and objectives. That's right. And and other than having, you know, maybe structures built, not much other development benefit for them as communities in terms of increasing their capacity or their understanding and their and a living beyond that. So I want to talk about the Intrepid Foundation. You set that up in 2002 and you're the director of the foundation. What led you to decide to set up a, a separate foundation? So as I said earlier, we, um, we started uh, supporting all sorts of small organisations right from the very start. And once we became profitable as a company, we decided that we would give 10% of our profits to, to aid uh, around the world. And so we started doing that and that worked really well. And we gradually found lots of small organisations to support. And some of those organisations we would visit during our trips. And our passengers really were interested in what we were doing and wanted to give us money. But we had no way of taking money from our passengers because we can't take, as a business, you can't take money from people and say, we're going to give that away in, you know, sometime in the future, it's just not ethical. And so the idea of creating the foundation was to be able to give our customers the opportunity to contribute to the organisations that we supported. Yeah, so in 2002, we did that. And then we moved from a model of giving part of our profits to these organisations to matching our customers' donations dollar for dollar. So a bit more risk for us in that, and it wasn't 
based on profit was just based on, on turnover effectively. Yeah. But it worked really, really well because for our customer, 100% of your donation goes to the beneficiary because Intrepid supports the cost of running the foundation totally. We're actually able to say 200% of your donation goes because Intrepid matches your donation dollar for dollar. Yeah. And that enabled us to start doing uh, a lot more activities and, and really expand the concept of what the foundation was. And what does the foundation do? What type of projects do you fund? So then over the years, we, we started supporting all sorts of projects. And it could be things like in Egypt, an organisation that rescued donkeys that were abused in the tourism industry and nursed them back into health. In Vietnam, there was one that helped overcome child labour abuse. So to get children out of enforced labour, which has been really successful, an environmental one like around uh, turtles or primates of some sort. So a very wide range of things. More recently, we've actually narrowed what the foundation does to organisations that have some sort of connection with the travel industry and with a focus on um, building work capacity, as in training people, creating opportunity for work yep. and especially for females yep. and uh, thirdly, creating work. So, so around that work and around the travel industry. And the reason for that is that we can raise money for organisations best if we have lots of engagement yep. and we can create that engagement if we've got stories we can be telling about what that organisation does. Yep. And so um, as well as taking people there, if it's related to travel, if, if we've got that, it works for both parties. So that's what we're focusing on it now, which is working quite well. Who is or has been the greatest influence on you in doing good and why? A big influence has been an organisation called Conscious Capitalism, and which is a philosophy more than anything. And Conscious Capitalism was created by an academic whose name just escapes at the moment, and the founder of Whole Foods Supermarkets in, in the US. And conscious capitalism is about the concept that business should exist to do good. And we totally believe in that. And there's been the last 50 or 60 years, there's been this whole understanding that business exists to make money. That came about from the economist uh, Milton Friedman. He said that, and that just became the dogma. And in fact, that's not true because businesses aren't created to make money. Most people create businesses because they want to offer a product or service which they see could be value to the community. And really, profit is a result of whether you run your business well or not. And so conscious capitalism is very much pushing that concept that every business should have a purpose beyond just making money. And so for us now, our business is really focused strongly on purpose and profit. Because a business still needs profit. You need profit to grow your business and you need profit to be able to do purposeful activities, but they've got to have equal weighting. That's sort of the driver of what Intrepid is about now. And I could talk to you about lots of purposeful activities that we've undertaken that cost us money, that don't make us profit in that, that year, but in the longer run, they create an opportunity or they enable uh, uh, Intrepid to grow because of the result of what's happening that activity. And did you discover conscious capitalism recently or has it been something that you, you've been kind of on board with for a while? 
it's probably eight or ten years. Conscious capitalism actually discovered me. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> there are two ladies who created conscious capitalism in Australia. Conscious capitalism was created in the US, but two ladies who uh, sort of started it here in Australia, they contacted me to say, oh, we've put a story about Intrepid in a book. And the book mainly got overseas companies, but one or two Australian companies, and we want you to come and talk to us. And so I went and talked to this group of people and I got really engaged with what they uh, were trying to do. And so I've been uh, involved in it uh, ever since. And it sounds like it, you were already doing conscious capitalism and I guess the concept resonated, right? That's right. Yeah. We were already doing conscious capitalism. It resonated strongly with us. And so we didn't have to change anything. Although it, you know, it, it gives us guidelines of things that we could be doing better. Yeah. And so we've done that. And so it wasn't hard for us, but for businesses that aren't naturally conscious, yeah. it's very hard to change. You know, individuals within a business can uh, be very strongly conscious, but that is uh, hard for a business to change, you know, once, I guess it's changing your philosophy or your culture or whatever, yeah. and that can be quite difficult. Absolutely, absolutely. So my next question is quite a big one. What do you think the greatest social challenge of our time is? And when I say that, I mean something that future generations would look back on and wonder what on earth we were thinking. <laughs> oh, look, I think the most obvious one at the moment is climate change. Uh, but we're all talking about that and that's very obvious. I think the the other one that, that is really, really important at the moment is the disparity in, in income and wealth within, within our society. And Australia's or, always been relatively good on the disparity of income and wealth because they're, they're different things. But the last 20 years, that's been going backwards. And I think it has the potential to become a major obstacle to the continuity of our very stable lifestyle. Yeah, in, you know, in 40 or 50 years' time, people might look back and say, why did you allow that to happen? But it is happening and it's, you know, it's obviously happened much more strongly in the USA than here. Yeah. But often Australia follows the USA, you know, at, at some period behind that and you can see it happening now. And it, it's while it's something that's identified, it's not really acknowledged by our governments as something that needs addressing. There's all this talk about increasing growth, increasing immigration, because that helps to increase our growth and our wealth. But for the wealthier, whatever group, wealthier half of Australians, their standard of living isn't necessarily going to continue to increase by having more money. It's also partly increasing by the less wealthy people having more money because they're less likely to have negative things happening in their lives due to, due to people not being wealthy. But it's not just about wealth, it's wealth and education and health and all those things associated with it. It's so seriously important. And, you know, there's lots of things that reflect that. You know, it's, you know, the education systems, the, the dichotomy between private and public education is becoming so significant. Health is another one. So, so all these things reflect that increasing disparity within our community. So what's the answer? <laughs> uh, I think the answer is ultimately for wealthier people to pay more tax. You know, over the last 30 years, it's been wealthier people and businesses paying less tax yeah. because supposedly that, that creates more incentive for them to work harder 
And, you know, while that's right, it's just gone too far the other way now yeah. in that we need to address the, the lack of income for, for lower people. So more wealthier people paying more tax. The benefits for um, people who are unemployed or on other benefits need to be increased because they are just embarrassing that we're, we're giving our, our people such a little money to, to live on. No, because we do have a, a society which has always had high good social benefits and it's like we're saying, no, that doesn't work. I mean, in fact, it does work because we've, we've been doing it for so, so long. Yeah. And in the Scandinavian countries, it works so well there and, you know, they're high taxing but they are leading countries on so many indicators that we should be following them more rather than following the US, which is, which is what we're doing. Have you heard of the concept of the universal basic income? Oh, yeah, I think it's a really um, interesting concept. I think there was a test in in Norway or somewhere in the last couple of years which didn't work terribly well, but it was really short and with a really small group of people. But I I think it would be great to see some countries trying it out more to see if it it can work. And obviously, politicians are just going to label it as socialism. And so it's really hard to get something like that through. But we're wealthy enough as a country to be able to try something like that and it will address the people on benefits and it will address females doing so much unpaid work in the home and having periods of life where they're not working because they're having children, addressing all those sorts of things. So so I think it should be investigated more, yeah. So you've achieved a lot in your life. What kind of advice would you have for anyone that wants to follow in your footsteps? If you are starting a business, I think the really important thing is to think long term. Yeah. So many people are focused on making money now rather than being successful in the longer term. Now, a really good example of that is that when we started Intrepid, we looked at, we didn't know anything really about the industry, but we looked at a bit of the industry and found that tour operators wouldn't guarantee the departures of their trip. So you could book to go on a tour to, um, to Kenya a year in advance and then 60 days before you were due to leave when you when you should be paying your final money, they'll call you up and say, oh, sorry, that trip's not going because we don't have enough people to run the trip. And that still happens quite a bit. And for Daryl and I, we couldn't understand why that was the customer's risk and not the business's risk. And so we decided that we would guarantee the departure of our trips no matter what. When we started, I was the tour leader and I led lots of trips with one or two or three or four people. And we lost money on those trips. But for us, we wanted as many people as possible to experience our trip, but we felt it should be our risk. And it was really beneficial because a lot of our sales come from travel agents. And for a travel agent to have it do all that work, have the trip cancelled is just really negative. And so for them to realise, oh, Intrepid will guarantee the departure, I can book someone on there and they'll go. And it really encourage agents to book our trip. So it was really a positive thing. And yes, we would sometimes lose money, but over a whole year, you wouldn't run many trips that would have not enough people. Once you've got a couple of people, well, more people would book and you'd end up with 10 or 12 people as as we wanted. And we weren't thinking long-term, that was just what we wanted to do. But it is long-term thinking because we're thinking about 12 months rather than one month sort of thing. But you can extrapolate that onto much longer term thinking and uh, and you probably know that we we were the first company to ban uh, elephant riding and you know we invested money in doing the research about that and then we did lots of marketing and, and PR about it and cost us lots of money 
But in the long run, that's just been so beneficial to us because we're seen as the elephant experts and we get so much media about about elephants now that it's hugely beneficial to us. So anyone who starts a business needs to think long-term, not not about the first few months. And and reflecting back to your 21-year-old self, what would you say to 21-year-old Jeff? I mean, it's really good to start a business when when you're young because a lot of people start a business when they're married and they're just having children, they're renovating a house. You do all, lots of people do all those things all yeah. at once and it's hugely stressful. So to get a business started before that would be good. But on the other hand, working for other people gives you really good experience. And like I only had one other job for Intrepid, which was for, for five years, which was great, but to experience other management styles and other ways of doing business would be really helpful. So I think it's great for people to have a variety of roles so they can see how different businesses are run and how different managers work as well. Yeah. If you could tell the world something and know that every single person would hear it, what would it be? Uh, Probably at the moment it would have to be about climate change and that we all have to take action to mitigate climate change and that's going to cost us money and it might cost us standard of living but it's such an important issue we all need to do we all need to act on it now and is that something you see at a a institutional and organizational level as well as an individual level oh yeah most certainly and for intrepid um we've been carbon neutral for nine years and it's not just our running our businesses carbon neutral our trips are carbon neutral you know, a lot of our trips don't use terribly much carbon anyway because if you go trekking in Nepal, you're not using much carbon. But then um, if you're flying within, a, we're flying to destinations, but flying within destinations using quite a bit. But, but we've offset carbon within our trips for the last nine years. But we've just um, made the announcement that we're actually going to become carbon positive. So we're going to be offsetting 125% of our carbon because we feel that that is a good lead for what all companies uh, should be doing. I was going to ask that. Is that something you're hoping other travel companies will take on? Yeah, most definitely. I mean, we want them to become carbon neutral firstly and then to become carbon positive. And I guess one of the reasons for us is that airlines are carbon neutral. And while we're not an airline, we cause a lot of people to use airlines. And so we're not resiling from the fact that, you know, we're part of that. And so... For us, we can't offset their airfares, but we can do something to be contributing to the added carbon that they're adding to the atmosphere. And we talk about and we'd love airlines to be genuinely becoming carbon neutral because they're, I'm, I'm not sure if they're genuine about it at the moment. And I think, you know, a company the size of Intrepid that does put a lot of people on aeroplanes has a certain amount of influence, or I would hope, in changing practices for some of your suppliers. Yeah, although with airlines, very little because most of our customers buy their own airfare separate from us right. because it's just the way airfares are these days and we can sell them airfares, but, yeah, it just doesn't work terribly well. And so it's a bit in the supply chain that we can't have as much impact as we'd like to have, but we can be educating our travellers and so that they're going to their airlines saying, do you offer offsetting, and which most of them do, but is your offsetting actually the genuine amount that is then created because there's various ways of measuring uh, carbon usage and airlines don't necessarily do it as they should because 
you can measure it at ground level, you can measure it at 30,000 feet, but the carbon has much more impact at that, that level and that's how they should be measuring it. Right, right. I'm interested in the supply chain and your ability to influence down the supply chain down to the community level in, in destinations. Do you think Intrepid has had a role in changing practices within the tourism sector on the ground? Ah, uh, yeah, for sure. So, so the big, big background in that, so our business model is very unusual in the industry and was created because we didn't know how the industry worked in that, you know, if you book to go on a tour to India with a tour operator, in most cases, that tour operator doesn't run the tour in India. A local company runs that tour in India. We didn't know how the, that was the way the industry worked. And so we built a business model where we have our own business in India, our own destination management company, and that runs our tour in India. That is really valuable for us because they're not a third party and they have the same values as us, the same goals as us. And so the, the quality of the trips when it's run by one of our companies, um, which is probably for 90% of our passengers, the feedback we get is, is much higher than when it's a third party running a tour. So that business we have in India employs all local people, but what you're talking about is, in a way, the next level down in the supply chain. And so we work with our suppliers who might be just a bus company or it might be a local person who just takes us around some local area or, or someone who gives us a, a local tour or whatever, we very much work with them to ensure that the product is to the standard which we want. And so, you know, that's the, um, the quality of the delivery, but it's also around things like safety. And so, you know, all of our parts of our tour have to be delivered at a Western standard of safety and all our tours are assessed for safety. And then things like all our leaders are paid a proper salary. And so, we don't countenance any bribery or corruption without, within our trips and within our whole, whole supply chain. That's fairly important as well. And because this industry doesn't have a good record of, of that sort of thing. So uh, no bribery and corruption and our leaders are paid a proper salaries and they're not allowed to take commissions. So you know, we don't have that instance of uh, taking our customers to particular shops because that pays the best commission to the leaders when they buy things. So. Yeah. Our leaders aren't allowed to take commissions and they shops they take people to, which they do do because people want that. Shops that own have genuine good quality yeah. and perhaps that there's, we are confident that their supply chain is is right. And it might be thing like a, a carpet shop in, in Nepal or the Middle East yeah. that, that their supply chain isn't using child labour. No, it's, I think that question of the supply chain and the impact on changing practices at the ground level is really interesting. And I think Intrepid, from my perspective, and having done some work with you guys through the orphanage tourism and rethink yeah. orphanages model, is that you do have that capacity to act as a um, an example to the sector in how to do business responsibly yes. and how to take responsibility for having that level of influence as well. Okay, so I'm gonna jump into some standard questions that I ask everybody at the end. Uh, they're not totally related to what we've right. been talking about, but where's your favorite place on earth? You know, as you would understand, I get asked that question you know, all the sure time. You and I never have one, I always have several, because it's unfair to other countries. So <laughs> for me, Thailand is one of the ones, because when we started Intrepid, that was our first destination and I was the leader. 
And so I've spent a lot of time in Thailand and understand the people and the culture really well. And in fact, Thailand was one of the inspirations for us wanting to start Intrepid. And while some people see Thailand as overrun with tourists, to me, there's parts of Thailand that are overrun with tourists. And there's lots of parts of Thailand where there's very, very few tourists and you can just still have amazing experiences. The second one is Turkey, which was the other one that inspired us. And well, I'm, I'm not sure why, but similar to Thailand, it's really easy to travel. There's good quality pensions. But a really important fact is that Turkish people relate to Australians so amazingly well yeah. because Gallipoli was really important for them and they have this incredible respect for Australians and also for so many of them have worked in Australia or have relatives that worked in Australia. So it's a very, very close bond. Um, and when I first went to Turkey, I realised I'd learned lots about Turkey at school through history and things without realising all those places were in Turkey. And then another one is Nepal. And Nepal is a classic case of people being very, very poor, but very happy and incredibly welcoming and willing to give you the shirt off their back if if you need it. So I have just been to Nepal coincidentally and would always go there at any opportunity that I was given. So so there's just three, but I'll keep going. So, you know, another one that I really love is, um, is the Congo, which... During our trip in Africa back in 1988, it was Zaire at that time. And we spent quite a few weeks travelling through Zaire and it was pretty rugged travel and very, very few people there, very few roads and all dirt roads. And I could talk about it for ages, but just, again, people really happy, music everywhere you went and just, yeah, an amazing experience there. Plus, it was in Zaire that I did the thing which is still the best thing I have ever done traveling which is visiting the mountain gorillas wow and while we take people to see them in Uganda and Rwanda same gorillas same mountain range is also part of the Congo uh, and that's where I saw them and that's still yeah, the best thing I have ever done when I've, when I've been traveling amazing amazing I imagine you don't get to travel off the beaten track so much these days I guess a reasonable amount I mean I have I have travelled as business travel where I need to go to Toronto and London and places like that. Uh, but I've just been to Nepal, which was really great. Yeah. And you know, earlier this year, um, uh, my wife and I went to the Kimberley, which isn't terribly off the beaten track, but it's still pretty remote. You yeah. feel like you're going to really remote places and off the beaten track for everyone except over 50s. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What book are you reading or podcast are you listening to? book I am reading is Dark Emu, which has just been in the media a bit because I think a certain Mr Jones has been probably railing against it and just amazing impact on me because it's all about the way Indigenous people lived before 1788 and how much more sophisticated their society was than what we have been taught about and how there's so much for us to learn about their 60,000 plus years of living in Australia. So they've just released a version of the book for children. And hopefully that will start to get used in schools much more so that our children can learn the real history of what Australia was like before Western settlement. Excellent. We learned barely anything when I was at school and I have a seven and nine-year-old and they've already learned so much more about Indigenous history. And it may be this particular school they go to, but I think having a resource like Dark Emu for children is going to change things so much for the future. Do you listen to podcasts? 
Yeah, I'm not a very regular podcast list, but I did listen to one last night, which was about uh, agriculture. Yeah. And this organisation in America, which is buying agricultural lands and leasing it to farmers for longer term, because there's this real issue that we have as well that most farms are owned by people who are over 60 and they're going to be needing to pass those farms onto their family, which probably isn't going to happen or sell them. And farms could get increasingly sold to big conglomerates and those conglomerates actually aren't good at looking after the land and farming in the most productive way. But it's very hard for young people to buy a farm, get into farming. And so this organisation is buying farm. I'm not sure where they get their funding from. I didn't catch that. But they're buying farms and leasing them to young farmers for the long term so that farmer has the incentive to look after that property and, and improve that property. And I guess maybe ultimately to be able to buy that property, I'm not sure. But um, I think that's a really interesting model for ensuring that we do have people farming uh, farming into the future, but also looking after the land because, you know, we've lost such a vast amount of our topsoil is one thing, so we need yeah. to be replacing that. But also there's such a huge scope for carbon to be stored in, in, in soil yeah. that we need people to do a farming to be... Uh, incentivized to ensure that ha- that happens. Sounds fascinating. What was the name of the podcast? I can't remember, but I'll, I'll, I'll send it to you. Okay, we'll add it to the <laughs> show notes as well if anyone's interested. So tell me about a person who you think is doing good in the world right now and why? Well, you know, the first one that comes to mind is Greta Thunberg. And, you know, that's very obvious because you think how, how is such a young person able to get such amazing publicity? But just every now and then someone pops up who just has that ability to do it. Yeah. Now, and some people have ability to do it locally, some people have the ability to do it internationally. And the fact that she is able to, I think, is is amazing. But the message she is spreading is uh, just of the utmost importance. And if, that, if her message can influence a few more people to take on the importance of overcoming uh, climate change, well, that will be hugely beneficial to us. Yeah, she's certainly inspiring and the ability to get that message out there has been really incredible. Yes, yes, that's right. Okay, well, thank you so much for your time, Jeff. It's been such a pleasure. Yeah, it's been a pleasure to have you on and um, I really look forward to hearing more about the community-based tourism projects that you guys are doing. They sound incredible. Yes, no, I'm looking forward. I've been really pushing for us to roll them out more and more quickly because I think we can, although the limiting factor is finding the not-for-profits to work with in each country to to get it happening. But but once we've found them, then we can just keep rocking them out and, you know, there's no lack of demand for us to be able to include them in itineraries. Absolutely. Um, it's It's just getting them going, yeah. Yeah, no, it sounds amazing. Thanks for listening to the Good Problem Podcast. If you like what you hear, don't forget to subscribe and share. Head to www.leematthews.com to find out more.